In Christ's name. Amen. So we've been in this series on the five solas of the Reformation. We've looked at Scripture alone a couple weeks ago. Last week we looked at grace alone. This week we're looking at faith alone. Next week will be Christ alone. The week after that will be God's glory alone. And one thing that I want to mention about these five solas, about these things that we would say, we affirm Scripture alone. We affirm grace alone. We affirm faith alone. And on through the list. One thing that I do want to mention about it is that on one side, we positively affirm something. But then on the other side, we negatively affirm something. So on the positive end with Scripture alone, we positively affirm that Scripture itself is the final authority. Okay? But then on the other side, we, negative, we would say, and all other things are not held to the level of Scripture. So we have a positive affirmation and a negative affirmation. Last week we looked at grace alone. Salvation is by God's grace. And so on the one end, we positively affirm that. Salvation is by grace. But then on the other side, we say, and that is all. There is nothing else that we would affirm to bring about your salvation. This week we look at faith alone. Specifically in regard to our own works. And so we positively affirm and say, we believe that salvation is by grace through the instrumentation of faith. But then on the other side, we would say, it is not by works. So we positively affirm on this end, faith alone. On this side, we say, and not by our works. It makes sense that faith alone is in the center of these five solas, or that we place that here in the middle of this five-week series, because it is truly the centerpiece, even of the Reformation. So many have mentioned, one author said that, no doctrine is more important to evangelical theology than the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The author J.I. Packer says, the doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas, you know, the, the man with the world on his shoulders. The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving faith. Martin Luther, who we've looked a lot at over the last couple of weeks and studying his life and how it relates to the Reformation those years ago, 500 years ago, he said this, if the article of justification is lost All Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. John Calvin, another reformer, said that the doctrine of faith alone is the first and keenest subject of controversy between us and the Roman Catholic Church. So so in terms of what separates us, we looked at that question a couple weeks ago. Why are we not a Catholic? Well, this article, this doctrine of justification, according to Calvin is the first and keenest thing that distinguishes us from the Roman Catholic Church. He also said that this is the main hinge upon which religion turns, the principal article of the whole doctrine of salvation and the foundation of all religion. He goes on to say that if we remove faith alone from our theology, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion is abolished, the church is destroyed, and the hope of salvation is utterly overthrown. So with what we're looking at today, you remove justification by faith alone. And according to all of these authors, we lose it all. You lose justification by faith. You lose everything. So you get this wrong. You ultimately get the Christian faith wrong. In fact, the reformers, although they disagreed on some things, they disagreed on the meaning of the Lord's Supper, they disagreed on various aspects of the church and whatnot. And even though they disagreed, they were all in unison on this one. They were all together that 
justification comes by faith alone. That this concept of the righteousness of God is given to us because Christ has gained that righteousness. They were in unison on us, singing in chorus together that this is the centerpiece. What do we mean by justification? Justification is a big word, and I don't want to throw you off by that. What is justification? Being justified is a legal act. And you're in a court system, and, and the juror, or the, whatever they call him, the first juror, whatever he is, he stands up and he says, we pronounce you not guilty, or we pronounce you to be guilty. They're, they're making a legal declaration of sorts. And, and, and for us, in terms of justification, this is the first piece that we need to understand out of two pieces. That we have been declared righteous. The first thing, being declared righteous. The second thing is that the righteousness that, get, that is given to us is from Jesus. And so, although we are unworthy, we looked last week at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and that we follow the prince of the power of the air, and that we are totally dead and able to do anything spiritual or good in and of ourselves. It is God who then turns and says, although that's the case, I declare you to be righteous. But where does this righteousness come from? In other words, God cannot assign you righteousness that does not exist. So you can imagine that, that court situation again where somebody is, maybe the juror stands up and he says, we declare this person to not be guilty. We declare them to be righteous. But what if they're actually not? We would say, well, that's a total injustice. That is totally wrong. But for us, it is though Jesus stands or God stands and he says, I declare you as the judge to uh, be guilty And although you are guilty, I'm going to consider you as righteous. It's a beautiful thing. But it's not on the basis of a righteousness that doesn't exist. It's on the basis of the righteousness that Jesus Christ has attained for us. So it's like writing a check that you can't cash. If you write a check for a million dollars and you don't have a million dollars in the bank, the person you wrote the check to is unable to cash the check in and get the money. And the truth of justification is that God made a declaration. He, he wrote a check, if you will, that was able to be cashed on our behalf because of the riches that Jesus obtained through his person and work. And so God declares you righteous, not on the basis of the fact that you are righteous, that you attain some level of goodness, but you are declared righteous on the person and work of Jesus. And so because of all that Jesus has done on your behalf and on my behalf, God then turns and says, I consider you righteous. Which brings us to the second piece. So yes, you have been declared righteous if you are a Christian here this morning, even though you're a sinner. But the righteousness that has been given to you is an alien righteousness. So the righteousness is forensic in that it's a legal declaration. But then it is an alien righteousness that comes to you. It comes from Christ. It's a a righteousness come from Him. It's a a, a righteousness won by Him and then extended to us. And so you are imputed, you are credited with righteousness. You have righteousness reckoned to your account. You think of the Good Samaritan. Remember that story that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan. And he comes along after those Jewish men had walked by him and, and he picks the man up, puts him on his donkey, brings him to an inn. And what does he tell the innkeeper? He says, any cost... That this man incurs, charge it to my account. And this is effectively what has happened to us in Christ. 
That Christ has come along and He has grabbed us. And He has taken us. And He said, any sin, anything that this person has incurred, I will pay. Credit it to me. So this is a beautiful picture that we have in our redemption. The only reason you can cash the check of righteousness in the eyes of God, the only reason your check of righteousness isn't going to bounce is because the check is not based on the standard of yourself. It's based on the standard of Jesus. And why is this important? It's important, again, because of what we looked at last week. That any righteousness that we have is as filthy rags in the eyes of God. This is why we sing, and why we sang this morning. My hope is built on nothing less, and nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. This is where our absolute hope is. There is no hope apart from what He has done. There's no hope in and of ourselves. We, we look to Him. We are only angled towards Him in regard to this blood and righteousness that we desperately need and we could not provide in and of ourselves. One author said, A man will be justified by faith when excluded from the righteousness of works. He by faith lays hold of the righteousness of Christ and clothed in it appears in the sight of God, not as a sinner, but as righteous. This is why, again, we sing in that song, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. It is not faultless because you're faultless. It's faultless because the righteousness attained by Jesus is faultless. And so this is what theologians have referred to as the great exchange. And this is something that I've labored week by week to explain and to show you. The beautiful, great exchange that at the cross, Jesus takes all of your sin. Jesus takes your penalty. Jesus takes your filth. And in exchange, gives you his righteousness. So here you are. Here the cross is. Your wickedness imputed to Jesus. His righteousness imputed to you. This is beautiful truth about sinners, the believers, is that at the same time, we are sinner and righteous. We are all righteous, wretches, sinful in and of ourselves, but righteous in and of Jesus. All that we've looked at the last week in regard to our own sinfulness is true. Dead in our sins, pursuing our sinful passion, following after Satan, conceived in sin, all of that is accurate. But what is also accurate about you, Christian, what should give you immense joy and pleasure in God is that although we are sinful and we are simultaneously viewed as righteous in the eyes of God, dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the reformers stood as best they could where they believed the apostle Paul stood and Jesus stood and the Bible stands in regard to justification by faith alone opposed to justification by works And they also stood for the distinction between your faith and your works in regard to being justified before God. And so justification is not a process. And this is something that the Catholic Church would affirm. And many others would affirm. That that justification, that looking right and being right in God's eyes is somehow a process. And that we're kind of joining with God and making our justification more and more sure. But that is not the way the Bible speaks of it. It speaks of it as that declaration. There's a declarative moment in which you are declared just in the eyes of God. And so they stood between the distinction of that. So we've got to keep the ideas of justification, that God declares us righteous, and sanctification, the idea that God is making us more and more like Christ, more holy, more what He desires, all of those things. We keep those two ideas distinct. That yes, you, I've been declared righteous, and then from then on, you are sanctified. 
you are being more and more, being made more and more holy. So you can live the holiest life imaginable, but you can never improve upon your justification. Once you're declared righteous by God, you're, you're declared righteous. Nothing changes that. Once God credits Jesus' work to you, Christian, then it's finished. You can't add to it. This is where I believe Paul stood. This is what I think the Reformers taught 500 years ago. But this is not the position of the Roman Catholic Church that they even hold today. In fact, there was the Reformation that happened 500 years ago. And then in the mid-16th century, there was a counter-Reformation from the Catholic Church. And there was what was called the Council of Trent, where a bunch of them gathered together to uh, basically point by point refute the Reformers and what the Reformers were teaching. And at the Council of Trent, they said this. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. So basically what they were saying is that justification is a cooperative work between you and God. That, that you, you can't be sure of this. You can't have the assurance that you have been declared righteous. And so they were saying that this is working in tandem together in order to maybe get to heaven, but certainly to get to purgatory and then further purification in order to get to heaven. And so in one corner, you have the reformers, men like Luther and Calvin and many others saying justification is being made right in the eyes of God, has nothing to do with the works that you do and everything to do with God alone doing the work that is required. And then you have the Catholic Church and the other other corner saying that anybody who says what the reformers are saying, let them be anathema, let them be accursed, let them be rejected. So those are kind of fighting words, right? Kind of like that fight. And so these two forces clashed over this vital subject and still clash in regard to it. The truth is, although this was recovered during the Reformation, salvation by grace alone is how it has always been. God justifies the ungodly. God saves wicked people. God takes the wicked, those who stood against them, and he dresses them in beautiful robes of righteousness, declaring them righteous. Throughout the history of the world and even the pages of the Bible, it is God who takes wicked men and women and he justifies them. And we really get a sense of that all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. In fact, why don't you look at Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, and we're going to see this ancient man referred to This ancient man named Abraham. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so what Paul makes clear with this brief quotation from this first book of the Bible is that what was true of Abraham in those days in regard to justification, that righteousness being applied to somebody, is the same for us today. And so we have the example of Abraham. Those of you who know anything about this man, you know that he was a pagan. In the end of Genesis chapter 11, coming into chapter 12 of that same book, you see that God is gracious to this man named Abraham. And he calls him out of this place called Ur. And so he has absolutely no godly heritage. He did not honor the God, the the, the true and living God. He probably worshipped the moon or something like that. Yet God takes this older man who is a pagan and he calls him out of his country and he makes a bunch of promises to him. It really is remarkable. When God just all of a sudden takes him and then starts promising all of these beautiful and wonderful things to a total pagan. 
And so back in, in Genesis 12, he says, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And so upon that, upon these promises that God has made to him, God enters into covenant with Abraham. This is a beautiful thing. You can trace this. Go home and read this. Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 17. And you see this covenant that God steps into with the man Abraham. And so what is this covenant? He takes Abraham out in Genesis chapter 15. This beautiful scene. He takes him out and he says, look at the stars of the sky. Count them. As the stars of the sky are, so shall your offspring be. And then there's this statement that is mentioned all over the Bible and in our passage today. Abraham, Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So what then shall we say, Paul says in the first verse of our text, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, absolutely nothing is gained in the flesh. And Abram, as an older man being called out of a pagan land after being a pagan his whole life, has nothing to boast about. And neither do you or me. Absolutely nothing is gained in the flesh. Now what is the flesh? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the flesh means anything that a man is prone to rely on in the matter of salvation. In other words, a Jewish person could rely on their circumcision, which Paul goes on to totally call uh, bunk because it's not based on circumcision that somebody is justified. A Christian could maybe rely on their baptism or maybe they could rely on their church attendance or being raised in a godly home or giving money or something like that. that what, what is the basis upon which you're justified? Well, I'm a really good person and I followed all God's law. What Paul is saying is that that is absolutely not the case. The flesh is anything that a man or woman chooses to rely on in regard to their salvation. And so when we think about standing before Almighty God, which every single one of us is going to do, and I hope you are ready for that day, on what basis have you been justified? On what basis have you been made righteous? And our tendency at the moment is to list off all of the good things that we have done. So God says, why? On what basis are you justified? And you can say, well, if you were Jewish, you could say, well, I I was circumcised. I went to synagogue all the way through. I did everything that the law had commanded. Or maybe you're Christian. You grew up a Christian. You went to church every single Sunday. You went to Sunday school. And you went to Awana. And you learned all the verses. And all of those things. But none of that is going to justify. Brothers and sisters, even in my own short life, I have seen many and many of the kids that I grew up with that went to church as much as I did, that followed the rules as much as I did, that learned the Awana verses as much as I did. And they're on their way to hell. Because it is not in the works of the flesh. It is in the work of Christ. Why don't you turn over to the book of Philippians quickly with me. Philippians chapter 3. When you consider the flesh and when Paul here is writing about the flesh. We see a beautiful illustration here in Philippians 3 of what that would look like. Philippians 3 beginning in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So in other words, if anybody could get into heaven on the basis of being a good Jew, Paul was that guy. Paul, on the basis of all of these things, could have said, why am I justified before God? Because of all of these things. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Martin Luther and we were talking about his monkery? That he said, if anybody could get into heaven on the basis of being a good monk, I was that guy. So many Christians, I think, or professing Christians could also say the same thing. Because of all of these things that I have done, therefore God is going to look favorably upon me. But look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. I count them as trash in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So there's nothing to boast about in your flesh. Nothing is gained in the flesh. So, so what did Abraham, the father of the Jews, have to gain in his flesh? The same thing as Paul and the same thing as us. Absolutely nothing. Nil, zilt, nothing at all can be gained in your flesh. In fact, anything that you can gain in the flesh, Paul says, it is rubbish. I count it as rubbish. Why? Because I have Jesus. And Jesus is everything. Let me help solidify this for you by reading some text to you. You cannot be saved by works of the law, the law of Moses, the law of the Ten Commandments. Nothing of that can save you. Human laws, man-made laws that churches may write up or whatever else, but salvation does not come by works of the law. Galatians chapter 2, 15, 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. But that is so contrary to how we're conditioned and to how we feel. We're conditioned to think that the more we do the more justified we can be. Uh, Or somehow we can seal the deal by doing more and more and more. But that is not how it works. In fact, Paul brings it to the nth degree in Galatians 2.21 and says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could be saved by obeying law, then what in the world did Jesus die for? The point is that you cannot be saved by doing the works of the law. That is why Jesus had to come and die on the cross. This is beautiful. So salvation does not come by works of the law, but then salvation simply does not come by works in general. You think of Ephesians chapter 2 where we were last week. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Why? It is the gift of God. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And I'll let you work that out. That you have been given God's grace, not because of works. You have been called by Him, and He gave this to you in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Titus 3, verse 5 to 7. He saved us 
Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Brothers and sisters, I hope that that is clear to you. That just like Abraham, just like Paul, and anybody else who has eternal life, their justification before God did not come to them through themselves. It came to them through the gift of faith that was given to them by God. And so if nothing is gained through our works, good good works that we think of, or good works according to the law, then the question is, how do we gain a right standing before God? A friend of mine recently wrote a book, and in it he argues that the whole question of the Reformation is how does a person get right with God? R.C. Sproul, I read a a quotation from him, and recently he said that uh, it's really, most people don't even really think about their good works anymore getting to heaven. That it's nothing to do with that at all. They're just basing it solely on the fact that I'm going to die, and somehow it's just all going to work out. But what is the answer to how somebody can be made right with God? It's justification by faith. Everything is gained through faith. If you're not still there, go back to Romans 4. And look with me again at verse 3. He says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul brings up an interesting illustration here of an employee, a person who works. I've told you this before, but about 10 years ago, I worked at a tool warehouse, and I distinctly remember one of the things that the owner of the company would do. And we all had our little different workstations, and we would go and we would collect tools off the shelves, and then we would package them up and send them out to different suppliers. We were a wholesale-type business. And what the owner of the company would do every single week is he would walk around on Tuesday, and he would put our check at every desk. So if I were working there packaging up some tools, he'd come by and he'd put my check on the desk. Then he'd go to the next one and he'd put one there and on and on he would go throughout there. Now what if he came to my workstation and I'm packaging up those tools and he drops off the check and he says, here is my gift to you for working 40 hours. It doesn't work that way, does it? If he said, here is my gift, and every, it's like Christmas, and he's just going around, and it's in the middle of July, and, oh, here's my gift to you for your last 40 hours of work. We, we'd be like, what? That doesn't make any sense at all. It's not a gift. I worked for that money. Those wages were my due. And this is what Paul brings up. That justification is a gift of God's grace through faith. And so to gain justification through works would not be a gift Because ultimately, that's what our salvation is. That's what our justification is. It is a gift given to us by God. The person who can be justified is the person who, like he says in verse 5, is the one who, like Abraham, believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted to him as righteousness. Brothers and sisters, Today, this very day, if you have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you are trusting in that and that alone, that is justifying faith. Philippians 3.9 again says, Not having a righteousness of my own based on the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So how do you know if you have saving faith? If salvation is totally based upon faith, how do you know that you have how do you have assurance of the fact that you have been saved? And I like what one person had laid it out in just three steps, if you will. Knowledge, assent, and trust. So you have a knowledge of what Jesus has done. 
And most of you, all of you, have that knowledge. You, you know what Jesus has done. You, he, he came, He died on the cross, He rose out of the grave to give life and forgiveness and all of those things. You have that knowledge. But then you ascend to that knowledge. Where you say, yes, I do actually believe that happened. But then there's a third piece. Trusting and believing in that knowledge, which in itself is a gift from God. And so I think that there are certainly our children, for instance. And they have been told. They, they know that these things happen. But at one point, they're going to have to send in their own knowledge and say, yes, I do believe that those things happened. I do believe that it's more than a historical event that they happened. I trust and believe in that alone. That is justifying to believe, to know, to trust in that alone. And then once a person has been justified, once they have been saved by God's grace through the instrument of faith, what is the result? Why don't you look over in Romans chapter 5. Just a a page over. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what is the result? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want peace with God? Do you have peace with God? Then you have justifying faith. I love what he also says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 33. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So the result of justification is at least twofold. It is peace with God. And it is forever with God in a glorified body. Peace in this life now. Glorification and peace for all of eternity. What a privilege. This is not a right. What a gift that we have been given by God. As we close, consider with me the parable of Jesus, another parable of Jesus in Luke chapter 18. Luke tells us that Jesus started speaking this parable because there were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they believed that they could be made righteous in and of their own good works. And Luke continues to say that they even thought that they were better than other people. They held other people in contempt, it says. And Jesus says that there were two men. One of them was a Pharisee and one of them was a tax collector. And a Pharisee is somebody who was religious, like Paul says about himself. He held to the law. He obeyed the law. He was circumcised the eighth day. He was all of those great and wonderful things in terms of Judaism. And then the other man was a tax collector. And these tax collectors were hated by the Jews because oftentimes, like remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man who would rake people over the coals with all of the taxing that he would do on them. And so the tax collectors were hated. The Pharisees were revered. And the Pharisee goes and he prays. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. And standing there in his own pomp and circumstance, proud of himself, proud of his good works, looking down on the tax collector, 
the great sinner, the one who everybody knew was a great sinner. He goes on and says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, totally boasting in and of himself. But the tax collector, you remember his response? He's standing far away. And he can't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this man, this tax collector, this great sinner, this one far from God, he went home justified. Brothers and sisters, it does not matter how many good works that you have done. They will never grant you declaration from God and righteousness of Christ from you. It is only those who have been justified by faith alone in the work of God on their behalf that will be justified. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this truth.